The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Euro 2022, hours to go. I want to be sedated. England, Spain. Home side get the fright on in Brighton, but come through with a win that was quite exciting. We'll talk Spain outplaying England, but not outstaying them, thanks to Georgia Stanway. We'll also have transfer talk. He's called Jaylings. Will Hammers fans clap him in the irons again? And we'll be looking back on the 2010 World Cup. From Jabalani to Jan, where is the love? All that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show. Dateline July the 21st. And thank you for being with us, listener. It's an exciting, totally lineup for you today. There's uh, Duncan Alexander's with us. Hi, Duncan. Hello. Also, Carl Anker returns. Hello, Carl. Ahoy, hoy, James. And from Pickfair, the best place to source your photographic needs, Benji Lanyado. Hey, hi. Hello, James. Yeah. Of 10 out of 10 for enthusiasm. Uh, we've got the athletic Charlotte Harper along shortly to talk to us about. England, Spain, what a game that was on Wednesday night. But in other news, Carl, you've got a new book out today, July 21st. I do indeed. Uh, for the purely audio I'm holding up right now. Okay. It says, Marcus Rashford, this is the sequel to How to Be a Champion, and this one's yes. entitled How to Stick to Football, Stay in Your Lane, and Score Some Goals and Help Your Team Out. <laughs> is that right? Uh, it is called You Can Do It, How to Find Your Voice and Make a Difference. Brilliant. Um, and it's the secret to URA Champion. Um, it's in all good bookstores now. Uh, and I hope if you enjoyed URA Champion, you might be inclined to pick up this new book. Excellent. How to Be a Champion, Volume 1, was, was, was a massive success. How was, how was Marcus... I mean, how was it also just kind of like working with him? Because he, he's such a special chap. Yeah, I'd describe the relationship a bit like um, uh, the one between an architect or a builder or... Uh, if you please, if you're making lager shandies, so right, he's the lager, I'm the shandy, and then we make a, a nice. You'd be the lemonade, yeah. I think, we, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Make a refreshing little drink there. But in the in the building <laughs> motif that you're employing, would you you you're the contractor, are you? And he's the architect, is that right? Or are you? Yes, the... yes. I'm, I'm very okay. much the builder and put things together. As he 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 shows me the grand design. That he okay, who's Kevin McLeod? <laughs> is that Eric Ten Hag? I suppose he might be now. <laughs> but um, you know, and I, I'm just kind of mildly kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, starstruck. Uh, he's he's such a kind of, he's a young man with such a vision and, and such a kind of clear head. Uh, what's he like? Is he, is he, does he make jokes and stuff? He does make jokes. He He does often, I do often ask him questions for the benefit of the 10 to 17 year olds that I might be reading. So, you know, we, we talk about, I think we've, I mentioned on this podcast before about how much he enjoys the Ninja Turtles, and we've gone even longer about how much he enjoys the Ninja Turtles. I right. asked him uh, what were his uh, childhood fears, to which he informed me he had a healthy respect for small dogs. So okay. not necessarily the Rottweilers that were running around the area, but if it was small a Chihuahua dogs. or something, that put him a little bit on edge. Uh, and we went back and forth on a number of concepts that, to him, were rather commonplace because he's been a professional football player since the age of, let's say, 13. But to try and explain that to civilians who like the snooze button might be a bit more difficult. So we, we had a conversation right. recently about how you bounce back after after making a mistake in football. And obviously, considering his summer and, and some of the, yeah. the events that happened at Manchester United, he has to be very resilient and understand that one bad game or one bad season isn't the end of it. And we're having a long conversation about how you just need to, to get past that. And he, he gave me the metaphor of uh, making pancakes. And he said, obviously, you know, when you make a stack of pancakes, the worst, mm. the first pancake is the worst one. But the first pancakes. pancake is the most integral pancake in, to your entire stack. And that's how he views things when he has a All bad right. game or a bad day. That's the second best pancake metaphor I've heard of late. That the, the uh, top spot I would give to um, somebody who is giving my, uh, my nephew relationship advice after it and said relationships are like pancakes the first one never never comes out right but that's fine that's oh, you know, blimey well yeah. there you go pancakes everybody <laughs> best right. smothered in maple syrup <laughs> <laughs> i seem to remember that sheffield wednesday the top scoring team on show tuesday in football history but i right. can't 
confirm that right now. Okay. Also, but I, I, a friend of mine who, um, a friend of mine, my cousin whose son used to play professional football, explained that that is the fundamental, the fundamental difference between you know the layman and the professional sportsman is the ability to bounce back. So like after you know England lost the Euros, for example, I mean I, I wallowed for like a week. I was devastated. Whereas sports people, that is the difference between them and us. They can they can just move on much quicker than than the layman. I bet you've had to bounce back from adversity in your time, uh, Benji. Uh, wow, is, is it terrible? I mean, I'm, um, <laughs> no, just to say, I mean, not that you're not not that you need to kind of take us through your your ups and downs. I'm just saying that I'm sure you've had to you you've displayed bounce back ability in in your time. Just it, it, it's something different, I guess, when your emotions are essentially hostage to somebody else's performance. That you, you you're so much more passive in that relationship that maybe that's why it takes takes you a little bit longer. But but yeah, I'm sure that we've all had to deal. Um, with Annus Horribilis's. How's your Annus been, uh, Duncan? <laughs> Pretty solid Annus. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's fine. All right, then. Well, hey, speaking of bouncing back, adversity, sportsman, football, all that kind of thing, brings us on pretty nicely to events Wednesday night at the Amex Stadium in Brighton when England came up against their toughest adversaries yet in Euro 2022, Spain. We kind of played off the park a little bit for the first hour or so, and yet still emerged as winners and into a semi-final. Woof. Let's hear about an extraordinary night in Brighton next. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Space opening up for Georgia Stanway. Goes for goal! Oh, my word! What a screamer! What a peach from Georgia. Surely. Uh, yes, remarkable night then, a remarkable match. Uh, the Athletics' Charlotte Harper was at the Amex and joins us now. Charlotte, good morning. Good morning. Excellent. You're still in Brighton? I am still in Brighton, yes. I'm just sitting in my hotel room, um, finished off my piece. So, yeah, uh, the adrenaline is still pumping. I can imagine. What? So what was Wednesday night like there at the Amex? I went into it thinking England should win this game. And um, considering Spain's group game performance, they hadn't really shown their true potential. And England, as we know, had blown teams away like Norway and Northern Ireland. And I felt confident. But the first 20 minutes, I just got nervous. Um, (laughs) That kind of sinking feeling in your stomach. Uh, We struggled. Spain were disciplined, organised. We knew Spain would have the ball. Uh, We knew that England would have to be comfortable with them having a lot of the possession. But the crowd were amazing, like awesome atmosphere, unbelievable. Like Spain had had all of the ball, but they hadn't really created that much. And then that first goal and you're just thinking, oh goodness, like, are we out here? I looked across to my colleague, Michael Cox, at 75 minutes, and I'm thinking, we're out. Like, Spain, they're brilliant at going ahead and keeping the ball. They can keep the ball all day long. And then as soon as that equaliser went in, ah, oh, the relief. And then after that, like, you think going into extra time, people are really nervous, and that's the horrible moment. But for me, as soon as we went into extra time, I just relaxed because England took the game to Spain, we were in control, we were much more dominant, we attacked um, using our wing play, and yeah, what a night. I mean, all the songs going around the stadium. I don't know how the players still had the energy to dance at the end, but Millie Bright and Rachel Daly were loving life, and uh, their legs must be knackered. Yeah, indeed. Uh, There were some pretty ruthless substitutions by Serena Wiegmann straight after Spain had had taken the lead. Is that where the game turned? Definitely. I think those substitutions uh, were really key. Um, the fact that uh, Alessia Russo came on, uh, she was instrumental in that equaliser. Brilliant hold-up play to head down for Toon uh, to tap in. Chloe Kelly as well. She just offers something different on the wing and her trickery and her manoeuvres, uh, I thought she had a very uh, successful impact on the game and a really smart decision from Serena Wiegmann to 
um, replace Daly, Rachel Daly, with Alex Greenwood. Now, Daly was being terrorised by um, Athena del Castillo and really causing problems on that right wing. Wiegmann put Greenwood on, but sent Bright up top as an aerial threat. Um, Millie Bright's the centre-back. So instead of putting a forward on, puts uh, Millie Bright up and then when they equalise, Bright can go back to defence and they play as a, a back four. So switch from a started off back four, then um, Greenwood came on, went to back three and then Golgo went in, reverted to back four. And that, that was very astute from Wiegmann, I thought. You, were you there for the 8-0 for the against Norway? I was. Right. How, how did this compare? You only got the two goals this time, but as a victory, how, how important was this? How, how big an occasion was this? This was huge because we were really tested. So for 84 minutes, we were under pressure. It was uncomfortable. Uh, we didn't have the ball. Whereas Norway, apart from the first five or 10 minutes, we, we barely felt threatened. I say we, I should say England, shouldn't I? <laughs> My uh, bias coming in. Um, and then, you know, England just stormed to victory against Norway. Norway was lovely to watch <laughs> because it was comfortable. We were free-flowing. It was a celebration. Whereas this was grit and dogged and determination. And first time we've um, conceded since the Arnold Clark Cup in, in February. So to go down 1-0 and... and and be down like we, so we conceded in the 54th minute and we equalized in the 84th minute that's at 30 minutes of holding your nerve what a way to take take the victory in extra time through through Georgia Stanway England going through to the semi-final on Tuesday against either Sweden or Belgium how nervous Charlotte are you about the semi-final given the way that the difficulty seems to have ramped up after the group stage and given especially England's record in tournaments losing in the last 3 uh, tournament semi-finals that they've been in? I think this was a really good measure of where England are at and I think they'll take a lot from this game mentally of how they've come back. Well, it's worth bearing in mind England have two extra recovery days as well. So Sweden play Belgium on Friday, semi-final on Tuesday and, and that could be crucial just to get a little bit more recovery time. I expect Sweden to beat Belgium quite comfortably and Sweden were picked as one of the favourites going into um, this tournament, very cohesive as a team. They had, you know, not some outstanding performances in the group stages, but their last match especially, I think we saw them take another gear. Uh, Sweden have had a couple of COVID cases though. They've been quite severely hampered at the back. So again, it will be kind of a race against time if those players can test negative. Regarding semi-final performances, yeah, we know we've been out in the last uh, World Cup semi-final and the Euros against the Dutch as well. Under Serena Wiegmann, there's just a new mentality under with this England team. It's not cocky, it's not arrogant. It's just they know their role, they know their strengths um, and they're relaxed. Uh, I wouldn't say they were relaxed last night, but especially talking to them before the game, there, there was a certain air about this team and this camp that, you know, you take water breaks all together, not individually, and, and a real sense of collectiveness among them. Mm. All right, well, Tuesday night then, either Sweden or possibly Belgium for England next. Germany-Austria is the next quarterfinal that's coming up tonight. You can hear how that one goes in the Athletic Women's Football Podcast first thing on Friday morning because that shows with you every day throughout the tournament. Charlotte, thank you so much uh, for taking time out there of your, from your kind of post-game celebrations, uh, neutral though they are. Uh, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon. No problem. Thanks so much for having me on. Crikey. What a game. I mean, Spain, it's a shame to see them go out. There was so much fun to watch. But uh, but yes, that Georgia Stanway goal. Hmm. The age-old stick the big man slash woman up front and turn the game. 
Um, <laughs> good to see Heritage being respected. But Millie Bright was brilliant. She won everything in the air all game, eight clearances. And that was a you know tremendous performance. And uh, yeah, I think Charlotte makes a good point about the extra two days because a few of the players had cramp and stuff in extra time. Kira Walsh um, went off. I th- hopefully it was cramp rather than a hamstring injury. But yeah, those extra 48 hours should should hopefully make a big difference. I'd say to echo what Charlotte was saying, um, Alex Greenwood, I thought, was flawless when she came on. And, and it did, and it's, I know it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd one to change the game, but it gave them so much more confidence to push on for the second because Re- uh, Rachel Daly's confidence was slightly shot by then and she was probably respon- largely responsible for the first goal. And it just felt like as soon as Greenwood was on, the whole team felt a little bit more confident about dealing with the ball coming in the opposite direction so they could actually head forward with more purpose. Yeah, I thought, I thought, um, and she even got a lovely little uh, tactical time-wasting yellow card towards the end. She was, she was brilliant, stuck her head in um, to get like, you know, accidentally inverted commas, high kicked, this kind of stuff. She was brilliant. It was, it was a victory, a triumph of, of game management and a nice amount of cynicism. Georgia Stanway's goal was the epitome of, no, no, don't hit it from... Well done, well done. Great goal, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, Tuesday they go again, and Friday we discover who England's opponents will be. Uh, Next up on the Totally Football Show, uh, transfer news, and that will be also asking this question from Jan de Vossen-Mordenar. Although there is still 40 days left, who has had the strongest transfer window? That's right. Answers on the way after this. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. All right, Jan de Vos and Mordenar, let's get an answer to your question. Who's had the strongest transfer window? City, Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea, Barca, PSG, Forrest even, says Jan. Forrest have been busy. Carl, what's your answer? My answer was the Ghanaian national team, uh, who have naturalised six players in preparation for the World Cup. Uh, They still haven't quite got a number nine, but uh, as a man of Ghanaian heritage who was slightly anxious about it being in a group of death, um, Mm. I've started saying some very mean things about Luis Suarez and saying I want revenge. So right. I, I think that's been a particularly good chance for a window. Is this all raid, raids from Chris Hewton? He's just darting across the country. Chris, Chris, Chris Hewton was brought in as a technical director specifically for the World Cup qualifier playoff against Nigeria. Hmm. Ghana defeated Nigeria and it looked as if that contract would have expired. But then it appears it's been extended because Chris Hewton is a lovely gentleman. And if you want someone to... Uh, switch national team allegiances you know he's, he's very good at that who have you, uh, who have you got Carl who are the, the six uh, so one of the I mean the, the big name for the Premier League watches is Tarek Lemty right um, and there's been a number of, of players across the diaspora a lot of them in Germany as well because okay. uh, George Addo is well up until became permanent manager he used to be the assistant manager of Borussia Dortmund Ghana's having a particularly interesting relationship with Dortmund now it seems as if Dortmund's are travelling over to Ghana more to have some sort of scouting partnerships if we should talk about club football I am very impressed by Spurs okay uh, because Conte Conte is a very interesting manager in that he doesn't really he seems to be one of the very few managers that does blind CV tests where he doesn't really care about the name he just looks at the uh, the profile of the player uh, and unlike Chris Hewton he just checks whether they're born <laughs> <laughs> just so excited for that just so excited to play Uruguay. Well, you know what? We'll, have a, we'll talk more about Ghana and Ravengi and all that stuff a little, little bit later on. But okay, Spurs, great shout. They've certainly done some business. Duncan, what would be your shout? Um, until I get my time machine working, uh, I can't really tell because if you think about this time last year, everyone was laughing at Arsenal and saying, lol, they've bought Aaron Ramsdale, this silly. And, you know, a few months later, they were like, Arsenal have done a great transfer window. It, it's hard to tell, isn't it? It's a bit like making judgments on pre-season friendlies. It's um, it's a fool's errand. Right. I'm wearing a clown nose right now. No, but Duncan, that's the whole point. I mean, I don't get people who say, I don't do predictions. I, I'd rather wait until we see <laughs> no, what No, I do predictions. I happens. love predictions. But right. I, I think transfers are... Okay. What about Man City? What about Man City? Who, even if they spend, what, 50 million on Mark Cucurella uh, to replace Zinchenko... 
We'll still have got him, Calvin Phillips, and the most in-demand striker in world football for um, buttons, basically. Their net spend, if you'll excuse the expression, is is minimal given the players that they managed to move on. I think the interesting thing with Manchester City is, yes, you know, the, the top-level players they are moving on, Gabriel Jesus and Zinchenko, but also they've figured out you know, the Liverpool trick of using the academy as a way mm. to top up the transfer fund. So Southampton have pilfered the head of recruitment from Manchester City and he appears to be taking a number of Manchester City's academy players over to Southampton, which, one, seems to be quite a good deal for Southampton and, two, seems to be a very... I want to use the term mates rates in terms of Man City getting mm. a little bit of top-up for their transfer fund because obviously they've got someone outside who's bringing in some players as well. And obviously you can make the joke about how Arteta's doing Pep Guardiola a favour by chucking him an extra 20 million there. Um, City are getting good at the transfer market, which was surprising to me because they don't need to get good at the transfer market, at least in terms of outgoings. Interesting to see what happens with Leeds. They've done what um, Spurs did when Gareth Bale went, which is essentially spend the the money before it arrives. So that, you know they've got... 100, 110 million pounds for Rafinha and, and um, Calvin Phillips. By the way, they should have got so much more for Rafinha. Um, but that's a, a separate topic. I, I, well, I think the benchmark for him was Jack Grealish. Anyway, um, they've bought in uh, Brendan Aronson, Lewis Sinistera, Tyler Adams, Rasmus Christensen. So quite a lot of new players. I guess when Spurs did that, they bought in mostly duds. Um, Roberto Soldado being the sort of the £30 million example. So, yeah, let's see. I, I think Leeds are going to really struggle this year, but it, I think it could go either way. Mm. Man United still haven't bought De Jong. They still haven't sold Cristiano Ronaldo. We'll talk more about that perhaps in a second or two. But Benji, what's going on with West Ham? Oh, man, Jesse Lingard. It's like, uh, I, it, it's like a love affair that feels like it could be about to go horribly wrong. Is it like, which pancake are we on? Oh, that's a good, good question. I've sort of, but the problem we've got here is that by the time this podcast comes out, he might have made yeah. his decision. So I've got right. sort of two takes on this. Okay. Um, so if if he if he does come to West Ham, I right. think this will be amazing because it's very rare that you have a transfer where you pretty much know exactly what you're going to get and exactly how mm. they're going to fit into your side. And and with Jesse, we, we do like it was. He only played 16 games for us in that 2021 season, but it was one of the most electrifying perform- uh, sort of spells that West Ham have had, really, since, since Dimitri Payet. Um, and it wasn't just the goals and the assists. He's got this thing, you know, Carl, I'm sure, will be familiar with. He's almost trademark ability to pick up the ball on the turn and create attacks. And if you've got Bowen and Antonio in front of you, it's quite terrifying for, for defenders. And last year, last season, without him which, by the way, West Ham finished on a, an Uncle Jeff coefficient of minus nine. Ooh. That was par- partly to do with um, the sort of Europa fatigue, but it was also a sort of Jesse Lingard discount because there were lots of games that I reckon we, we would have we got a point or would have won with him in the side. So, and he's got this infectious personality. And so, yeah, no, I'd love him back. So that, that's, the, that's the if he comes to West Ham take. Why would he not go back? Why, why is he not leaping at the chance to return to a place where he enjoyed so much success, live in the capital, etc., and so on? Because Forrest are waving a lot of money in front of him. Mm. Um, and and, and it's, I'm not quite sure where this, where this has come from. Um, because it seems quite contrary to their sort of their, their, their transfer dealing so far. It could well be sort of the Lingard camp using, um, using Forrest to get up to the kind of 180k a week that he's looking for. Um, who knows? Anyway, I've got to say, his, his kind of cachet amongst West Ham fans is like dwindling very, very quickly. And if he, en- if he ends up with Forrest, I mean, you know, he can, he can f*** off, I've got to say. <laughs> uh, but, but just, you know, it's like, it's literally, it's like pleading for an ex-girlfriend to take you back and then they end up with like a kid in the year below. It's just embarrassing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he's been pissing around, dancing on TikTok all summer whilst everyone else has been pre-season training and dropping silly hints about where he's going to end up and, you know, like a sort of like a tin pot Antoine Griezmann. So, you know, Jesse, no one, no one cares. And, and by the way, if Forrest end up nicking him, you know, they've built up quite a lot of goodwill, I feel, among, among the neutrals <laughs> mm. over the last couple of months. It's all very romantic that, they, that you know, they've, they've come up and, yes, that's, that's very nice. But that, for me, that would be over if, the, if this goes through. And, you know, I hope their, their mess of a squad <laughs> goes Forrest straight back down. Benji. Be yeah, low, I want them to get a lower points t- t- uh, total than um, Derby County did. Ooh. Derby County, by the way, that Can't team happen. I hugely Possibly. admire. 
proper team with integrity and honour that maybe Forrest could learn a few things from. So, you know, um, go the Rams. So, listen, that's James. Like, that's how I feel about it. You can't Jesse be Lingard. getting that mad about Jesse Lingard. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. no. got to me, Carl. No, you he's can't. Got, he's got inside you my can't. head. The entire time you were saying Jesse Lingard was really good, Duncan was pulling your face on. I know what that face means. That face <laughs> meant outperforming XG. That was his outperforming XG phase. Carl, you know me too well. He ran really hot in that half season for West Ham and he was scoring way too many, he was scoring more goals than he should have. Yeah. And this smacks of, if Jesse Lingard goes to West Ham, it smacks of Joe Willock getting his deal made permanent at Newcastle, right? Very interesting. Like, like you don't, you don't need, you don't need this version of Jesse Lingard. You've already had the best version of Jesse Lingard. You had a lovely, you had, a, you know, to continue the relationship analogy, you had a lovely summer <laughs> romance. Right. You, you don't need to move in together. Football is littered with examples of players who do really well on loan and the club waiting a year or two to get them back and going, do you remember <laughs> how good he was? And then they're like, oh, they're, oh right. And let's remember, Lingard's going to be 30 in December. Th- these clubs are offering him a lot, like, an absurd amount of money. It's like 150, 180 grand a week. In the last three Premier League seasons, I know he hasn't played a lot, but he's got mm. the same number of assists as Andy Carroll. Uh, is that worth that much money? I'm not sure. Yeah, I've got, I, I mean, I've got, I've got to say as well. I do trust David Moyes. I think that he's he's re, he's pragmatic, and that's why I think I'd be surprised if we get drawn into this kind of whether it's real or not bidding war um, on a 29 year old player. Um, but it, we'll see. I think it'd be quite strange, maybe for both clubs in that respect. Let him go to Forest and then get him on loan in January. <laughs> you, can't, you can't. You can't be paying that much if if the reported wages are are true. That is. And I know inflation and I know obviously, you know, football in 2022, money isn't real anymore and everyone's dabbling with NFTs. But it, that does feel like absurd overpay for a 29-year-old. That is, you're probably only going to get 18 months before the decline of a player like Jesse Lingard, a player who outstanding skill is athleticism and his interpretation of space. He's not going to get any faster. And his hot streak on shooting is very streaky. Uh, no, don't, do you, do you know what, don't though, use that money there. I actually think that, that the, one of the things about football that's changed is that that's worth it. If you get 18 months of like exceptional Premier League footballer who can change a game and can pick you up those extra nine points in a season, that is, I think that, that is worth it. I love that Carl. sentence you just said. I would have. I'm circling the word exceptional and I'm tapping that word. I'm going, no, yeah, yeah, no, point, come, on, come on, come on, do better. Get scouting. Anyway. Well, looking forward to seeing which way Jesse Lingard falls on this Forest West Ham question. Armando Breuer. There's still a shout for Armando Breuer. Is that right, Benji? Yeah, I, I, I quite like that one. I think I think Southampton fans absolutely loved him. Yeah, the, my slight concern is that we've been lo- like we're looking for a player who can be back up to Antonio, mm. and he's not that. You know, Antonio actually doesn't get the credit for the, how creative he is. He he um he made ten assists last year. Broya got none. He's a, he's a very different sort of striker. He's like a pro. He's a quite an old school centre forward, but he's got the same sort of like he, he can bully defenders. So I think a really really nice as a kind of alternative. To um to Antonio, but we'd have to play play quite differently with him. I think I don't like right. the idea of it coming with like a buyback or like a a sort of essentially that's a loan. If a player comes mm. with a buyback clause, you know. Anyway, we'll see. Okay, doesn't doesn't score a lot of goals, Amanda Breuer. I, I, I would say. Um, oh, meanwhile, Hammer's old boy Sebastian Haller. Uh, dramatic news for him. He seems he's been diagnosed with testicular cancer. Very best wishes to him. Of course, there've been pl- plenty of people in football who have. Uh, made swift even recoveries. Francesco Cherubi was back playing really quickly after a couple of bouts of that with uh, in, in Syria, and you know went on to has had a great career after that, and of course countless examples in English game as well, going back a bit further. So best wishes to Sebastian Haller, who just made the move to to Dortmund, of course from Ajax. So, hmm. um, Carl, Man United looking good down under, apart from the uh, abuse from the crowd. Uh, and that was just Eric Ten Hag shouting, what the f*** are you doing to David De Gea? Yes, ruthless. Was, uh, ruthless than you manage <laughs> A stickler for detail. Uh, very much Ten Hag has a reputation for being a tracksuit manager and being meticulous in his detail. And I think that is, it's been a bit of a shock to, to United fans. Ten Hag is the first United manager to take the lead on training since David Moyes. And 
you know, Manchester United were three goals up against a you know heavily rotated Crystal Palace side in preseason. Yes, but the fact mm. that he was still yelling at David de Gea and a little bit at Charlie Savage for, mm. for opting to go long rather than passing short shows that he doesn't want standards to slip. I've described him a little bit as the Frankenstein's monster of every Manchester United manager since Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement. So he's got oh, go a pragma- he's got a pragmatic streak similar to David Moyes. Okay. He's, got, he's a stickler for Dutch football. Um, from Louis van Gaal. He right. can be a disciplinarian and swear it from you at the touchline like Jose Mourinho. And he, he can, behind closed doors, be a man-manager and put on his arm around your shoulder like Oliver right. Solskjaer. I don't want to know what he's taken from Ryan Giggs, but we'll, we'll just move on to uh, the fact that it is working well so far. Rashford, Sancho and, and Martial. We were talking about this on, on Tuesday with Laurie Whitwell, from, uh, who, who was speaking just from Australia about how well things seem to be yeah, it just seems to be clicking up front. It would be a shame if some kind of extra body came in, having skipped all of these fun and games and spoiled all that. Eh? It would. It would be a shame if a, a certain footballing black hole would arrive at Manchester United. <laughs> um, Ten Hag has been very bullish about the abilities of Cristiano Ronaldo, and he's you know, mm. say, saying words to the effect that you know good players with good talents can work in any system, and he believes Cristiano Ronaldo to be an exceptional talent. Mm. The system, as it currently has been working at pre-season with Rashford on the left, Sancho on the right-hand side, and Anthony Martial often dropping deep and then bursting behind, running in behind. <clears throat> I'm going to be polite here. It is not impossible for a 37-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo to do that, at least below the shoulders. I think the difficulty with Cristiano Ronaldo is convincing him above the shoulders to Mm. stick in certain areas of the field and not to drift left where he often wants to do when he thinks things aren't working. Um, Did you see, just sorry, when you were talking about below the shoulders and that, it just came to my mind this extraordinary report I read about him having Botox injections in his nether regions. Have you seen that story? I I did see that story uh, and I immediately closed whatever app I was reading it on because it felt so bizarre. It Um, is a strange story. (laughs) And invasive as well. Cristiano Ronaldo apparently, Mm. according to... This was reported in Massa? Yeah. I, allow, I, I yeah, believe yeah, it's it legal. Marker, yeah. mm-hmm. but, isn't that, but isn't that like, isn't that going to help with his leap a little bit? Or, I mean, no, I think we're, no, no, no. It, it, it's more designed Benji, to improve his jump? tackle. <laughs> yeah, I've got some But hold on, Botox images. in his bum. Have I missed something here? No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, other, <laughs> okay. other side. Anyway, anyway, with this entire section right. destined now for the cutting room floor... Uh, let's just mention that he is still of interest to that side from Madrid, Atletico Madrid. I would love to see him play for Atletico Madrid because it would be A, just hilarious, and B, what what would he do in a Diego Simeone system? And that that is, that's a thought. Anyway, it won't happen, no doubt, but if it does, we can be talking about that next time. Uh, we've got some other things to discuss, including a bit of when Real Madrid took on Ian Holloway, next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. We're off to the Lowry in Manchester, listener, for a special season preview, Totally Football Live. Uh, that's on August the 9th, which is a Wednesday, I think. Wednesday, if you're in... It's a it's Tuesday. It's a Tuesday, I'm hearing. I bought my tickets. Oh, nice one, Carl. I think we could have comped you, but yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're in Manchester on the 9th and would like to join Carl and Duncan, Michael Cox and Julian Laurence and myself... Uh, for that, then uh, head to thelowry.com for tickets. Duncan, what, you've got something special lined up, I imagine, for one of our favourite crowds. Red Hot 22-23 content. Incoming, really? Yeah. Woof. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
I've asked for a preview, but you said no. That's absolutely for the folks who are there on the, the 9th of August. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. no chance. Uh, all right, well, that's our season preview. <laughs> season, of course, is already underway for some. Shout out to Northern Irish champions, Linfield, who beat last season's Euro surprises, Bodo Glimt. Uh, you remember they got all the way to the Conference League quarterfinals. Uh, anyway, uh, they've just been beaten in the first leg of their Champions League second qualifying round match uh, by Linfield at Windsor Park. A 1-0 win, courtesy of Kirk Millar and some wild celebrations with Linfield players kind of headbutting each other accidentally amid all the amid all the, <laughs> the joyous scenes. Anyway, second leg, though, coming next Tuesday inside the Arctic Circle. So, yeah, fingers crossed for Linfield in that. Uh, the Athletics' 50 best Premier League performances now up to 13. Quick shout-out for that. Uh, number 13 is the only Wigan player on the countdown. Anyone care to guess who it would be? The only Wigan player to make the Athletics' 50 best Premier League performances ever. Is it Roddy Yeager? It's not him. No. Carl? Antonio, Antonio Valencia scoring it's against Manchester not. United? No, no, bizarrely not. Although maybe that they're saving that for, you know, the upper reaches of the top ten. I'm not sure. <laughs> it is Charles and Zogbia ah. from May 2011. Benji scoring twice as the Latics came from 2-0 down to beat West Ham 3-2. Was that a significant game, Benji? I think it sent us down, didn't it? It did. It sent you, Avram Grant's hammers, down. And kept wigging up. And they've got to made that number 13 out of 50. Shocking. Yes. <laughs> on this day, it being the 21st of July, we're on the anniversary of, in 1914, what was popularly held to be the first ever Brazil game when a combined Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo side played the Grecians, uh, Exeter City, that is, and beat them 2-0. Exeter City were on a kind of missionary-style tour of South America at that point. It's also the anniversary of, speaking of sides from Devon uh, in unexpected matchups, the 21st of July 2006 when Plymouth Argyle took on Real Madrid on one bench, Fabio Capello, on the other, Ian Holloway. This was Ian in his pre-game press conference. I'm sure they're worried about us. <laughs> How did that come about? Real Madrid wanted to go to Austria to do their preseason training, but Fabio Capella discovered his favourite hotel had already been booked by the Pilgrims. So to convince them to move to another place so he could have his preferred resort, they offered them a friendly and beat them 1-0. There you go. Uh, do you fancy a reminisce about a World Cup that nobody liked very much? Then have we got a final part for you on today's Totally. The rest of you stick around because we'll, we'll do some hating on 2010 and that'll be fun as well. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. In the absence of our quadrannual global football get-together this uh, June and July, we've been looking back here on Totally at uh, some of our favourite World Cup tournaments from yesteryear. Strangely, no one has yet said... World Cup 2010, the one in South Africa. Hmm. Anyone Anyone like this World Cup? Carl? I am amenable to this World Cup in a way okay. that I know a lot of people aren't. Um, right. I think I've said on the previous podcast, it's, it's just got a very strong flavouring to it and you can either bounce completely off it or you enjoy it. I love the sound of Ibizellas. I love the essential dissolving of some really established football hegemonies there. So England don't have it great world cup there italy get knocked out in the group stages mm. uh, and obviously the final was competed by two teams that had not won a world cup yet which i thought was quite brilliant i also really mm. enjoyed that semi-final between spain and germany which sort of served as a sequel to euro 20 2008 that spain team you know nowadays are regarded as one of the greatest international teams ever but to get through germany they twice needed carlos Pio, which is that really nice example of you can have all the tactics of the world but when it comes to the knife edge of international football, sometimes you need the intangible, which is punt it to the big lad or the slightly diminutive lad with a big heart. Fair His enough. header in the semi final was amazing. It's one of the Thumping. great World Cup headers.
it is a really strange World Cup. I think visually, mm. um, so this, they everyone at that well, a, a number of Nike athletes at that World Cup were, were wearing these mercurial vapors, which were grey at the front and orange at the back. Okay. And it's just the sight of every single match. There'd be twenty-two players, obviously, but at least fifteen of them all had the same football boots. So it feels hyper real, unusual, and also not quite real at the same time. Uh, yes, the football was quite dour. Spain very much needed Davivia to eke out whatever boring strangulation football they were playing at the time. Um, but there, there are some charms to it. you just got to sift a bit deeper. I'm also okay. a massive sucker for BBC's closing montage for that World Cup. which was, What was the tune? Uh, it was a reference to District 9. So okay. it, it was sort of like a short documentary that pretended all these alien spaceships landed over South Africa, right. and then all the football, uh, all the international football teams in the world came over. Um, and I, I still watch that to this day. It's one of my oh, favorite short films. It's a, nice. it's a really nice closing World Cup montage. Hmm. What about you, Duncan? Where do you stand on the tournament of Vuvuzelas and the, and the Jabulani? Well, the Jabulani, yeah, that was. Um, it feels like this tournament was the. The last pre-analytics sort of tournament, in a sense. Um, the Jabalani kind of exaggerated how wrong... It was almost like big analytics invented the Jabalani to, to show people <laughs> how wrong shooting from long range was. Um, there were 983 shots from outside the box at this World Cup. In 2014, mm. that went down to 805, and in the last World Cup, 695. So people have wow. learned. But, I mean, it will, it will forever be tainted, I think, by the fact that Spain won the World Cup scoring eight goals. Yeah, you know, their knockout games were one nil, one nil, one nil, one nil. They completed three thousand seven hundred ninety-six passes and scored eight goals, and that is a ratio that no human should have to endure. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's still I still wake up sometimes and you know crying at, at, at that statistic. So um, yeah, not not one of my favourites. I do remember. I want to say partway through the knockouts, there was obviously the Jabulani com- com- uh, conversation had reached sort of a crescendo. Uh, and Clarence Sadoff was on BBC panel and basically went, I'm going to take a bunch of these out and I'm going to go see what's wrong with it. Knocked it around four or five times. They went, oh, he, I think he made a comment about uh, the top spin. He said, if you just don't, if you just hit it a little less hard, it's less, it's not likely to swerve all over the place. Um, and then you saw very few direct free kick goals in that World Cup, but Diego Forlan seemed to have figured out the Jabulani before everyone else. And I think Kuske Honda also got a direct free kick goal as well. Uh, and th- those were two gentlemen that seemed to have figured out that ball before everyone else. I also, I really, really enjoy the Argentina versus Germany game because Diego Maradona coaching Elino Messi, the, you know, the image of Mar- Maradona, he was wearing two watches at the entire time of being a coach. He had one, uh, which was South African time and another one, which I think Hand was of local, time. which was local time for Argentina because he always wanted to know uh, what time it was where his kids were. Uh, right. And there's a little bit where Germany are completely dismantling Argentina and he's sort of praying and he's got these two watches together and he's looking towards Messi and Messi's looking at him going, you're the manager, do something. There's this wonderful image of Maradona hugging Messi at the end. Uh, and Messi's not really reciprocating the hug back. And it's just this very Godfather 3. Okay. Yeah. Is that image. Yeah, <laughs> Messi had 29 shots that World Cup and didn't score, which is the most ever recorded. Which I think, it, it yeah, you're right, Carl. It feels like a missed opportunity that romantic football should have seen Maradona and Messi combine for Argentina to win that tournament. Mm. But it just didn't, didn't quite work out. Right. It, Carl, as you say, when you sift through a bit deeper, you do find some some delights. The French bus meltdown, who oh, can forget? Super. The owl on the crossbar, which is, I think, my personal <laughs> highlight. Uh, it was the last World Cup before goal line technology, which I'm not sure if it was a direct consequence of uh, Lampard's not allowed goal against Germany, but uh, we, that was a factor in its, in its swift introduction. Benji? Yeah, I think there's lots of little, there's lots of little nuggets in this World Cup. Some mad goals, maybe because of the Jabalani. There was that Mykon goal versus North Korea, which is the kind of cross, but it was actually a shot. Also notable goals, Winston Reid scoring to get New Zealand their first ever World Cup point. There'd be such jubilation for New Zealand if they could just find a goal. That's exactly what they're trying to do in these closing moments. The ball is good, and the goal is good! New Zealand incredibly have drawn... The game with Slovakia, surely now. Martin Palermo's only ever World Cup goal, and that was actually off, well, I think Messi had hit the post. Palermo had scored the goal in the downpour um, to get 
uh, Argentina to the World Cup. The Quagliarella chip against Slovakia yep. in oh. the game. That goal Heartbreak. is sublime. Yeah, but um, it was Luis Fabiano's turn as Brazil's number nine. It's quite notable that Ronaldo's last World Cup was 2006, and actually since then Brazil have never really had like a banker number nine. So it's not like a new new problem for them. Few cultural notes. I thought personally, I think mm. the song Shakira. Waka now, waka not the this obvious time choice. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she was inexplicably given the job, but I think she did did a decent. It was a decent gig for yeah, her. Yeah, Pitbull was busy, I think. But. <laughs> Definitely. And um, after the another sort of cultural note, after the final, right? Um, do you remember when Casillas was being interviewed by I think his girlfriend or wife, and he just sort of like went in for a kiss? Yep. I remember finding that very romantic, but actually in hindsight, probably quite problematic. Right. Um, and then my the final um, the final. The, beautiful little <laughs> bit of trivia that I found from this and I'm sorry to bring this up Carl right. you know the um, so in the Gian quarterfinal that, that quarterfinal the, the, um, Sebastian Elbreo El Loco he's, uh, he, he did the Penenka to, to win it right which, which yep. has got to be one of the most extraordinary Penenkas in football history and I had a little little browse of his Wikipedia page guess how many clubs Sebastian Abreu El Loco um, has played for guess go on, I'm going to say 11 I'm 14 11, 14 Jimbo 14, I'm saying, yeah. Duncan? I'm going Trevor Benjamin-esque 21. <laughs> no, no, he played for 37 clubs. Jeepers. How? What? what the hell? <laughs> El Loco, he was Loco for a, for a signing on fee. He, uh, and he only, um, he only retired last year, apparently. What? I think it's... A, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. So how many I mean, seasons he's did been he pack those 37 clubs into? I think it's. I think he started in '95 and finished in in, in 2021. So that's amazing. Yeah, 26 seasons. That's amazing. All right. Well, you know what? You mentioned the quarterfinal Uruguay against Ghana. We we should probably finish off on that. Not least because yes, they will be facing. There's the rematch on the second of December in Qatar because they're both in that group together. Who else is in that group? Carl. Uh, Portugal and South Korea. I see. So, I see. Uh, the the closest. I think that's probably. The closest thing to a, a group of death, mm. uh, if not by FIFA coefficient, but in terms of oh well, yeah, and very good third place. Certainly team a group there. of narrative with, with with this rematch. This was the tournament that had seen the first ever goal for all of Africa, when, <laughs> when South Africa scored against Mexico in the opening game. Uh, but it also almost saw the first African nation reaching the semi-finals. That nation being Ghana, denied by that infamous Luis Suarez handball. Crikey. Asamo Jian then the penalty was awarded and Asamo Jian then missed and it went to the shootout. And then, as you mentioned, Benji Uruguay with that, that, that bit of flair from Abreu um, went through painful, the semi final. Pain, painful, yeah. painful, painful, though. Asamo Jian, can I ask <laughs> you about his, his kind of role, his kind of his place in, in, in the kind of Ghanaian football legacy? He is a very strange character in that he has missed two very noteworthy penalties for Ghana during what is now regarded as their golden age. So not only did he miss that penalty in 2010, but also in the 2012 AFCON semi-finals against Zambia, he also missed the penalty. Uh, and at least one of his buildings was marched on upon a, uh, a large group of disappointed Ghanaian fans who slightly simmered it. Uh, in in protest of what he did there, they uh, set fire to a building that he owned. Pot, I, the building might have been one of his houses. I um, see. But he is the top scoring Ghanaian football. He mm. has a very interesting reputation in that he probably played for the Ghanaian national team a bit too long, mm-hmm. uh, and he needed to be replaced. But also, there was no direct successor as the number nine uh, obviously he wore the number three because he believed it to be a number that gave him great power which i thought was quite funny uh, and he just released a book this year called led gian Derry, which i think is a phenomenal title for for an autobiography <laughs> he's um, okay so he was also he's he's been a recording artiste a uh, big hit with African girls as uh, performing as Baby Jet with Ghanaian rapper Castro. Song released, I think, just after the World Cup, in, certainly in 2010. Castro, phenomenally successful Ghanaian rapper who subsequently uh, disappeared and was has been declared, you know, essentially dead while on holiday with Asamoah Gyan in, in what was probably a jet ski accident. But um, yeah, there were some strange rumours 
circulating. I don't know if, if uh, uh, Asamoah uh, goes into that at all in uh, legendary, but uh, might be worth flicking through to see see that. Hmm. We should probably just give a quick mention to the disappointment of England's tournament um, before everyone was like, it's going to be winter in South Africa, that will really suit the English oh, players yeah. and they'll be <laughs> have loads more energy. Well, they didn't have much. Um, sort of scraped through the group stage, Wayne Rooney saying, nice to hear your own fans booing you. Um, and then the Germany game, which obviously we talked about the, the Lampard uh, mm. goal that never was, but... <laughs> I think it might have been the last time Mesut Ozil outpaced anyone as well. Gareth Barry really couldn't catch him. <laughs> that midfield, actually, England had Milner, Lampard, Barry and Gerrard, which it does feel like the, the last scrapings of the golden generation. Hmm. Uh, and then obviously 2014 wasn't successful, but did feel like a sort of you know gateway to a, a new era, I guess, with your Ricky Lamberts and your Adam Lallanas. So, um, Indeed. Yeah. We, we did have a man in the final, though. In 2010. Well, that yeah. That man being Howard Webb. That man's mm-hmm. now come back to save us. So, in many ways, he's got a story arc like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, scarred by a horrifically violent incident, um, goes into exile, but now is coming back um, <laughs> with greater understanding. So. And he used to work in the force as well. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he showed nine yellow cards to the Dutch. This is Howard Webb we're talking about. Referee for the Spain-Netherlands World Cup final, nine yellow cards to the Dutch, 14 in total, by far the most bookings ever in a World Cup final, and yet missed the biggest one of all, Nigel de Jong. There was, a couple of years ago, a phenomenal article from Jonathan Liu that essentially looked at Howard Webb's entire categorisation of cards and made the argument that that World Cup final completely changed his approach to handing out cards, and he became just a lot less card frequent. After hmm. that World Cup final, it's, it's almost a, there's a dramatic shift in how he referees games after that point. Interesting. He's a lovely chap, by the way, Howard Webb, if you're curious, having uh, having been a co-worker of mine or, or, or vice versa on, on various occasions. He's, he's an absolutely lovely chap and uh, talks a lot of sense. And he's <laughs> going to become the chief refereeing officer at Pogmore. After Mike he, should Riley do a, um, he should do a Clattenburg and get, he should get like Nigel de Jong's studs tattooed on his arm. Nice. To, to commemorate the, the peak of his career. Is it, yeah, Clattenburg did that. Was it the Champions Clattenburg League? has the Champions League, the uh, Euro 2016 final, and he's got one more tournament tattooed on his sleeve. Okay. His autobiography is phenomenal. It is truly, truly partridge levels of, needless to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I think that might have been the last laugh for us, actually. Uh, listener, because we we reached, I believe, the end of today's Totally Football show. Yes, there is another one along on Monday. Looking ahead to the semi-finals of Euro 2022. Not sure if there's any World Cups left for us to look back on. Possibly there might be. We'll be detailing the latest news from the transfer front and other things as well. Send us in a question perhaps, if you'd like to participate. For now, though, many thanks for being with us. Thank you so much to Carl, Benji, Duncan and producer Charlie. And have a great weekend and we'll catch up with you next time. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.